Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Sarah Ennis. She's a professor of genomics at the University of Southampton. She's worked in the field of genetic epidemiology for over 20 years. Uh, She runs the Human Genome Informatics Group. It's a dry laboratory, which we'll get into uh, very briefly, specializing in the analysis of what's called NGS data and clinical cohorts. So we'll talk about all that. Uh, Sarah, thanks for coming. No problem. Yeah, I didn't know this until recently, but I've heard about dry labs versus wet labs. Can you explain yeah. that to listeners what the difference is? Yeah, I think um, I think this goes to most most of the time when you tell people you're a scientist, um, they assume that you wear a, a white lab coat and you work in a in a wet laboratory with lots of beakers and conical flasks and small solutions and PCR machines and things like that. Um, but increasingly especially these days, more and more scientific research uses huge amounts of data. Um, So actually, we're all scientists, but we look like where we're just sitting at computers, very often manipulating data, analyzing data, uh, merging data together, using things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, statistics, um, to try and find out new information from lots of different types of data and merging different data types. And people who do that and sit in front of computers and analyze data are generally called dry lab scientists. A wet lab is more traditional experimentation with Yeah, more traditional. Absolutely. People who might be doing models models of uh, gene function, might be analyzing people's DNA, might be trying to um, put mutations into different... um, cell lines to try and assess their impact. They might be growing uh, different materials. They might be trying to understand where different genes or proteins are expressed, um, where, where proteins are in, inside cells. So they'd be doing that sort of things using more traditional wet lab equipment as opposed to the dry lab uh, scientists who are using lots of different types of tools and software, but generally through a computer. Okay. And then your work in particular, you're looking at the human genome um, in what context? So I've been looking at human genetic data for, as you say, over 20 years now. Um, But principally, I'm looking at um, people who are sick. So uh, patient data. So we've been, when I started working in this area, we were uh, trying to find out sometimes uh, how and why DNA mutates and changes and how and why any of those changes that do occur, how do they cause disease? Why do they cause some people to be ill? And then why do other changes have apparently no impact whatsoever? Um, so my all of my working life, I've really been looking at um, either patient data or patient data and comparing it to people with, um, to healthy individuals to try and understand um, what mutations are important in clinical disease. Um, 
how they're important, why they're important, um, and uh, trying to understand what happens in families with regards to those mutations. And of course, ultimately, the aim is to try and make it so having that extra information is of some clinical utility to try and help diagnose patients better. So providing clinicians and, and clinical research teams with more information, a better, a, a, a more of an armory to um, inform themselves and understand how and why um, a disease comes about and what drugs might work best or what treatments might, might work best and what is the likely prognosis for those patients. So we're always trying to understand right. the cl- clinical basis and, and inform um, the clinical outcomes for those patients. Well, how do you know what you're looking at? I mean, I know no. you've been doing it 20 years, but what, I mean, what do you see? You, you don't just see endless strings of base pairs with the letters. Well, actually, our data can look really, really, really boring. <laughs> and there are actually some copies of the human genome reference sequence available. And I can promise it would send um, even the, the, the worst insomniac to sleep. So it is literally 3 billion base pairs of A, T, Gs and Cs. But absolutely, the question is, how do you know what you're looking at? So the sort of data we're looking at um, most frequently these days is called next generation sequencing data. Um, And that's just a a fancy term to uh, say that we've gotten a lot better at sequencing human DNA. And and actually for that that fact, sequencing human, um, animal, viral DNA. So right now all around the world, there's lots of people sequencing lots of COVID samples. So we're, we're much better able to sequence um, DNA and RNA of any source. Um, and what we do is, for example, in a patient with disease X, we sequence their DNA and it might be just for a specific section of the genome. For example, you might decide you want to look at a patient with cystic fibrosis and you sequence the gene involved in cystic fibrosis, and you compare that patient who perhaps might have the disease of cystic fibrosis, you compare their sequence to what we now know to be the genome reference sequence. And it's essentially a spot the difference sort of scenario, whereby you're finding the differences in the patient compared to people who don't have that disease. And then you're moving on to try and understand, well, why would changing a C to a G at that position cause disease. So you have to understand the context of any changes you find. So is it is it imp- an important base pair with regards to um, helping that gene be switched on or switched off or helping it be located at the right position within a cell so that it's able to do its job? Or um, does, does the mutation change the function somehow, mean that it can't interact the way, with other, uh, the way it's supposed to with other proteins? So once we find those differences, we need to try and understand them. Uh, to be honest, one of the big problems is, is when, we, when, we, when we do the spot the difference thing between anybody and the human genome reference uh, sequence, the problem is we spot lots and lots and lots and lots of differences. So problem number one is identifying, well, which differences are important. And then once we find those differences, it's trying more and more to understand exactly how and why they're important and how that, how that information might help us pass on new information to clinicians to perhaps prescribe the treatment that will work best in that individual patient. You know that um, a certain sequence is a, uh, you know, what's, what's termed to be a gene. Is it always preceded by, let's say, I guess they call it a start codon, and 
you know, ended by an encodon? Does it always fit neatly within two defined markers or can genes well, sometimes be like nebulous? Well, we, we, we certainly always used to think that. We always used to think genes, well, we always used to think genes were the, the most important unit. And of course, genes are what we refer to as coding genes are the bits, the recipes within our genome that tell us how to make all the most important proteins, whether those are proteins involved in making our eye cells um, receive light and help us to, to process images, or whether they're um, genes involved in liver function and help make enzymes that help us, I don't know, break down paracetamol so that we can um, get rid of the pain in our leg after we, after we break a leg, whatever it is. So those genes are very, very, very important, but more and more we're understanding that there's other units throughout the genome that are not traditional genes as we call them with a start site an AUG codon and a stop codon so there's lots of other non-coding genes um, that don't actually end up coding for protein but they do get transcribed so they do print out a message but it's a message of RNA rather than DNA and that RNA message does have a function within the cell very often these are regulatory functions and they can be really really important too so um, whereas our, our image of, of genes and, and uh, the regions of the genome that encoded important messages was, has been quite limited, the more we learn about the genome, the more complex it gets. And the very simplified um, analogies that we might have had maybe um, 30 or 40 years ago are always getting more and more complicated. Do, um, when I imagine uh, DNA being read, I imagine you know a part of it unzipping and part of it being read. If I if I say I don't know the uh, you have a left strand and a right strand or strand one and strand two, is strand one always read or a certain spots strand two read, for instance? Oh uh, yeah, so we call those the positive and the negative strand. So the positive strand runs what we call five prime to three prime that's just to do with the way the chemicals are at the start and the end of the strand so the positive strand is the strand that we often refer to as the reference sequence strand but um it's a really good question you ask because in fact it's not the only strand that codes for either coding or uh, for genes that either code for proteins or the ones that don't that they just code rnas both strands can actually code for genes so it's entirely possible that you would have one gene being encoded on the positive strand, but also on part of the same complementary negative strand, you can have an entirely different gene be encoded. Yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've heard there's um, DNA also can loop and lasso and I guess bring parts of itself together and be read. Is that yeah? The, yeah. So, so, so can you, yeah, can you read part of a gene on I don't know the the you know, one of the strands and finish it on another strand from another place? So more so, so individual genes are, are more often coded contiguously or um, the exons for individual genes can be coded contiguously within a gene section. But there can be regulatory genes that um, either could be on the opposite strand or could be further upstream or downstream on the same strand of DNA or be on a completely different chromosome. And it's that can be the complex of of those genes and the RNA transcribed from those genes that actually is involved in the ultimate functioning of that section of DNA. So very often DNA does rely, and the ultimate expression of DNA, does rely on um, more messages 
than just the message in that specific region or gene. So when when someone says they've sequenced, you know, a particular creature or they've done a particular sequence, are they just talking about the positive strand from start to finish or do you sequence the negative strand too? Do you sequence, I mean, how do you sequence properly? Okay. So, um, so you do often hear that scientists have just sequenced the first copy of some new species, um, I don't know, the armadillo genome. And what, what they typically will have done at that point is get a, a small number of, of um, samples from that species. And, and certainly when it came to the human genome, they divvied it up and shared different chromosomes out amongst labs around the world. Um, and a small number of samples are, will actually be sequenced. Um, uh, so a small number of individuals might be sequenced and then a consensus will will be reached. Typically, people are read out the sequence in the on the positive strand because DNA always has this complementary base pairing rule that if you have an A on one strand, you have a T on the other strand. If you have a G on one strand, you have a C on on the opposite strand. So this ATGC base pair ruling means that if you read the positive strand by default, you will know the negative strand. So it tends to be when somebody publishes a sequence, they tend to publish the positive strand. Um, so, um, so, so that's what's, what's encoded or what's then made available as the reference sequence for that species. But of course, what's actually made available for the reference sequence um, might actually made, be made up of some number of different individuals. For example, the chromosome 1, 2 and 3 could be from individual A and 4, 5 and 6 could be from individual B. And there are some issues with that because, of course, then you're, what, what truly is reference who is who represents, for example, the normal human that should be the reference human genome sequence? And the truth is, there is no normal human. We're all different, and and, and many individuals are, live happy, healthy lives to up to their hundreds. So there's no one individual that represents the the normal or the best reference human genome sequence. And um, so what people tend to do is um, as the versions of the genome reference sequence have um, evolved over time and we're at at version 39 at the moment very very rare mutations um, that might have been found in those original individuals that have been sequenced they've been replaced with what is more commonly observed in most people and that's what's now evolving to be the human genome reference sequence but of course There'll be key differences between ethnic groups. And so it may be over time that we might generate a reference human sequence for Northwest Europeans and another one for maybe um, different African populations or Asian populations. And then those specific references might be the best references depending on which patient group you're looking at or what your scientific question is. So how different would um, your genome and mine be versus... uh two sisters let's say okay so um it depends it depends exactly uh, so i can't see you right now richard but um uh, i and i'm so i'm not sure exactly what you're well, i am group i am are. human am you're human, human thank you you're, yes you're human and you're speaking so um so it'll depend if we were from very different ethnic groups um then our dna will be slightly more different um whereas if we share if we shared two parents, then we would expect that 50% of our genome would be in common. 
Um, so that's why we're able to pick up relatives from, um, you know, crime databases and that sort of thing. Because if, for example, somebody got sequenced or, or um, had certain amounts of their DNA looked at or their DNA fingerprint looked at, it might be possible then if somebody else was, I don't know, involved in, in, um, in for some reason, having their DNA looked at some years later, um, it's possible to pick up relatives that way because um, first degree relatives or siblings will share on average about 50 of their DNA because they will each have received half of their DNA from their mom and half of their DNA from their dad, assuming they have the same parents. The percent I thought it would be like 99.8 versus 99.9, let's say. Well, um, the amount that you receive that's identical. So every time, every time um, a woman generates an egg cell, a gamete, uh, um, half of her chromosomes, so uh, we're a diploid species, so we have uh, two chromosome number ones, two chromosome number twos, all the way up to chromosome 22, and we have an X and a Y. And in one of those egg cells, um, the woman will just randomly put one of her chromosome ones, one of her chromosome twos, one of her chromosome threes, all the way up to the sex chromosomes. So 20, 22 individual chromosomes, and then one of her X chromosomes will go in there. And let's say um, one of those egg cells went to make me, whereas then my mother might have made another egg cell to make my brother. It will be a random allocation of those 22 chromosomes plus, plus the um, um, sex chromosomes that goes into the egg cell that makes my brother. So each time you're sort of flipping a coin um, to decide which of the chromosomes goes in. So, of course, along the genome, those chromosomes might be very, very different. Even if my brother and I inherited two different chromosome ones from our, from our mum, all along the chromosome one, everybody has um, almost exactly the same sequence. Everybody who's human will have almost exactly the same sequence of genes. And the vast majority of the, of the coding region of those genes will be very, very similar amongst all humans. But um, uh, by chance, there's a 50-50 percent chance that I would share exactly the same copy, mutations included, as my brother for each gene across that chromosome. Wait, so when, when someone's sequenced, which set of chromosomes are you sequencing on them? Well, actually, that, that's, that's another good question. You sequence across the whole region and you find out every point at which there is a mutation and sometimes the mutation is only on one chromosome and sometimes the mutation can be on both chromosomes. So you find out that information too. So, and that's called a genotype. Um, when you're not finding out, so it's, it's kind of like you have, um, you have two versions of every, of every gene and um, you've got to find out what are, the, what are the combined set of mutations or changes or variation across the gene and the genome that any individual has. So sometimes for whatever it could be, position 100 in gene X, um, it could be that I have a C in the copy of that gene I got from my mum, but I have a T in the copy of that gene that I got from my dad. So I would be called a heterozygote at position 100 in that gene. So what happens if, um, I don't know, uh... I'm pretty, you know, the end goal is a, a certain protein is produced by a section of my genome that uh, is heterozygous. How do yeah. I respond versus someone that's homozygous or they don't have that at all? Okay, so um, 
that that all feeds into the whole reason why some people were and some genes and some diseases are uh, known as dominant and recessive. So if you take cystic fibrosis, for example, um, so that's a gene um, in, uh, involved in a, a channel that uh, has a role in clearance of, um, of mucus from the lungs. And if you have a mutation in that gene, uh, and remember, we all have two copies of that gene. In order to have the disease, you need to have both copies of that gene compromised. So that would mean that the copy you got from your mom must have had some mutation in it that impaired its function. And the copy you got from your dad also had a mutation in it or a variant in it that caused it to work less, the same um, protein to work less well or perhaps not to be not to be copied out from the DNA at all. So, um, and it's not always essential, actually, that, that you inherit the same nasty variant from your mum as, as the nasty variant you inherit from your dad. It could be that um, in the copy you get from your mum, there's a deletion at the start of the gene that means that the, the gene recipe isn't read properly. And in the copy you get from your dad, perhaps part of the, part of the um, stop codon isn't working. So you end up printing out some gibberish with the gene as well. And that copy doesn't work either. But ultimately it, may, it ultimately, it means that the individual inher- who inherited no good working copies of that gene would suffer from cystic fibrosis. Whereas uh, perhaps that individual's brother or sister might have inherited the copy of, of the mutated version of, from their mum plus a normal copy from their dad. And for that disease, for cystic fibrosis, because it's a recessive disease, you don't actually present with any symptoms unless both copies are compromised. And so that's known as a recessive disease. But um, there, of course, are, unfortunately, a number of dominant diseases as well. And that means that um, even if only one copy is impaired, it's possible to present with the clinical symptoms of that disease. And that changes from one disease to the next. So do you ever characterize families like, you know, so my mom's chromosomes are I don't know, do you ever label them as like up and down? You know, like the uh, the first pair are labeled all up, the second pair are labeled all down. So I'm like one up, two down, three down, three down, four down, five up. Do you ever, I'm just making up my own language for it, but yeah, yeah. characterize um, people I, like that? Well, we very often, when we're looking, we wouldn't characterize individuals like that, but we would um, perhaps if we had lots of sequencing data on an individual, um Obviously, we need a format for encoding those data in very, very large files on a computer. And so very often the data would be encoded, for example, you would um, to encode any variant or to capture the information about any one variant. uh, Typically, you would have which chromosome is the variant on, what position on that chromosome is the variant at, and that's the position according to the reference map. And then you would list what we would expect to be at that position. So you might expect to see an A at that position because that's what's in reference at that position. And then you say what you observe at that position in your patient. And it may, may be that you observe, well, in the genetic sequencing data that you've got for that patient, uh, you have uh, 50% of your data for that patient says that there's an A there, but the other 50% of the data says there's a T there. So that looks like that individual is a heterozygote 
at that position in that gene. And we would encode that to either one slash zero or zero slash one. Um, and perhaps some other individual might have all the information might indicate that they have T at that position. So that position would be a homozygote for the non-reference allele, and we would encode that one slash one at that position, noting down the fact that the, it, the change was from an A to a T. So rather than the up-down, we do use ones and noughts. Okay, I got you. So what's, uh, when you talked about next generation sequencing, what is that versus the sequencing that came before it? So, so the first generation sequencing was a type of sequencing called Sanger sequencing. And um, it's very clever, very rigorous um, method of sequencing genes. And it worked absolutely well. And um, it's been regarded as the gold standard in sequencing for generations and, uh, well, for decades. And um, the problem with it was that um, it was very expensive to do a huge amount of sequencing that way, mainly because it was a little bit slow uh, relative to what, what we can do now. Um, so groundbreaking and phenomenal as it was at the time, new methods have come along that allow us to sequence, basically to sequence DNA at a much, much higher speed. And that's called next generation sequencing. Um, and it allows us where it took about a decade to sequence the human genome using old fashioned Sanger sequencing. Well, it's now possible using next generation sequencing to take DNA from, um, from an individual, be it a blood sample or a saliva sample, and you extract the DNA. Uh, and it's actually possible to generate a whole human genome sequence in, in little over a day now at a absolute minute fraction of the cost of what it, what it was to generate the first human genome reference sequence. And that is what next generation sequencing, it's, it's the newer technology that allows us to sequence at huge scale, which means that we can take, in, in my area of, of research, we can take individual patients and actually sequence vast amounts of their genes to try and work out what variations they have and which ones of those might be important in their disease and in helping us understand how people have acquired or, or been born with some problem. Uh, so we can better understand it and better work out how to how to fix it. Is the whole genome sequenced or just parts of it? The vast majority of the sequence of the human genome has been sequenced. There's these really tricky bits. Um, All right. So you were saying, um, well, I was going to ask you, so is the entire human genome sequenced? Because you, you keep saying we're sequencing a large part of it. Yeah. So... Um, in actual fact, the vast majority of, we do know the vast majority of the whole human genome sequence. There are these little regions around um, what's called the centromere of, of individual chromosomes. So we have these 23 pairs of chromosomes in humans, and each chromosome has this sort of um, central core region that's important um, when making um, gametes, when making egg cells and sperm cells. And that particular region it's called the centromere it doesn't um, have lots of genes in it but it does have some very very sticky dna and by sticky dna we often mean quite repetitive dna so regions with with very very long or very high gc content and repeated sections of g's and c's and it can be very tricky to actually stop the dna tangling up on itself to get an exact read of what those G's and C's are. 
Um, so at the moment, that's not perfectly resolved, but um, it's probably also balanced out by the fact that we don't expect there's an enormous amount of genes in there. So we don't think we're missing very much. But those regions are likely to be quite different from one person to the next, but they're also just terribly sticky. And so we haven't got a perfect sequence around that region. But almost all the rest of the genome, we have really quite good sequence of, and we'll have sequenced um, all the other regions of the genome in many, many, many millions of individuals. So how have people figured out, you know, this stretch of base pairs uh, is this gene? How, how, how do people find it? Define genes and how do they know what they do? So um, to define a gene, well, there's, there's computer algorithms now that can go through sequence data, very much like machine learning algorithms could go through sequence data now and pick up the key signatures of genes. So start, uh, start positions and stop codons and splice site regions, which are regions that um, of the genome that end up kind of... Uh, highlighting a position where um where a molecular scissors has to come along so you can stitch all stitch together all the correct sections of a gene so um it's possible to train machine learning algorithms to do that now because we have found so many different genes we know a lot of key characteristics that's not to say that there isn't some stuff that we're still overlooking because we've still yet to learn about it um but both uh, genes that code for proteins and genes that code for important RNA regulatory mo molecules, many of the key characteristics of those are known. So we're able to predict those from the genome, uh, the genetic code. And of course, we can, once we know the, know the structure of a gene, well, then it's actually possible to clone it perhaps into some cells in a laboratory and generate the proteins from those genes. And then we can do, well, this is back to the traditional wet lab functional testing of how those proteins interact. Do they bind properly where, um, with um, other proteins that they're expected to interact with, even when they have some variants or mutations at its position? So that's how we then start to take changes in the genome and test the function of the proteins that those genes encoded. Overlap for a certain stretch you know, of gene X, does it only do one thing or do some genes do multiple things? Well, some, that, that's, uh, some genes do lots and lots of different jobs. Um, very often, um, the detail available on genes is always based on what we first identify as the function of the gene. But the more and more we study different genes, we're seeing that, okay, we thought that gene just did something in the liver, but actually now we understand it also does something in the kidney. Um, so uh, very, very often genes actually have more than one role. Um, but um, the first time the gene is studied, obviously it's, its role is very often named for um, what, it's, what's, what it's first found to function as. But that's probably, it's probably wise just to say, well, okay, we know it does that, but we don't know what else it does quite yet. Um, so increasingly, we're finding additional roles for genes that we, uh, we assumed, once we found out one of its roles, we assumed that was its role. But it, it's, it's like everything in biology, the more you look at it, the more complicated and the bigger the puzzle gets and the more layers that puzzle has. So there's lots of genes that encode proteins whereby we're seeing that the proteins um, can have subtly different functions in different tissues, or there can be subtle, subtly different versions of the gene that are produced from a single 
gene. It's kind of like I always um, think of it as if you ha- you can have a recipe book and the recipe book could um, inco- could tell you how to make a sponge cake. Um, but some genes, just like that, they, they tell you how to make the sponge cake. But there can be some additions to it that tell you, well, OK, this is how you make a chocolate sponge and this is how you make a lemon sponge and this is how you do a vanilla one. It's possible to do the same thing with genes, that there's subtly different versions of different enzymes and proteins that may have different functions at different stages of our life. So, for example, some genes, they would have a particular flavor, if you like, encoded um, or produce a particular flavor protein during the in utero life when a baby is just growing in its mother's tummy. But the same gene might switch on an extra little bit of of that gene or add a little bit of extra of the recipe um, during adult life. And so it's a slightly different protein encoded then but it does perhaps a similar function or it could still function, have multiple functions around different tissues in the body. Genetics, methylation, histone, deacetylation. How do you sequence if something is methylated or it's affected epigenetically? Okay, so um, standard next generation sequencing approaches typically just work out the ATD base pair sequence. But there are um, newer technologies called third generation sequencing technologies Um, that at the same time as sequencing the ATGCs, sometimes those are chemically able to work out if there are um, methylation signals or other chemical modifications to those base pairs. So um, it can be possible to do that. It's also more expensive to do, and um, it's not part of the standard approaches that are being used in very, very large-scale projects, such as all of us or Genomics England. I mean, are you able to sequence the epigenetic marks on someone's DNA, or is that not there yet? Uh, Well, if you use some of these newer third-generation sequencing technologies... There are some studies showing that they are generating good data, which does show these chemical modifications such as methylation. So um, some of the the third generation sequencing technologies can do that. They can work out the epigenetic changes. Um, But to do that on a genome-wide scale would be very, very expensive and still somewhat prohibitive. So people tend to zoom in on particular areas of the genome that they're very interested in, and then they might sequence those those areas using this third generation sequencing technology and work out what the methylation or what other epigenetic applications are to that sequence. So it is possible, and I've no doubt it will become increasingly possible and increasingly more accurate. Over- Someone, um, have people looked at sequencing different cells from that person different uh, cell types to see if there's any differences yeah yeah so there's a huge project called the human cell atlas that's sequencing cells from different parts of the whole body so um we have lots of different tissues and um and there are lots of projects going going ahead just sequencing different cells from different parts of the body and uh, sequencing the rna from different parts of the body as well to try and understand um, what changes might be seen in those particular tissues. And of course, um, one tissue type that people are, are very, very interested in sequencing is um, tumor tissue. So um, there's an enormous application of next generation sequencing in taking small biopsy samples from patients who have a cancer, a tumor, and sequencing the tumor and comparing that to the other healthy cells in that individual and again, doing the sort of spot the difference. Where does the tumor differ compared to 
the normal healthy um, cells within that individual, trying to understand those changes and then targeting the cancer treatment specifically towards the mutations that are observed in the cancer cells only. For when you look at data from someone like, you know, what's an example, some of the things that you're looking for? Oh gosh. Um, so because we run a genomics, a genomics lab, um, we actually can end up doing projects on lots of different clinical situations. So my laboratory looks at common diseases, rare diseases and cancer. So we're looking at uh, some rare cancers, trying to understand what are the genetic variations in those cancers that, that bring about the cancers and make them perhaps more aggressive or less aggressive. Uh, we're looking at rare diseases so rare diseases are diseases that affect typically less than one in 3,000 patients and are very often caused by mutations in just one gene. And again, it might be on both those individuals' copies of the, their genes, so the copy they got from their mum and the copy they got from their dad. Or it might be um, just a single gene mutation in one copy, a dominant disease. So we try and understand uh, rare diseases, both dominant and recessive. And uh, we're, uh, my group is also very interested in looking, what's been, looking at what's been traditionally labelled complex diseases. So those are diseases like asthma, um, arth- uh, rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, um, and trying to understand. So in those diseases, we know that there's lots of different genes that can either um, cause sometimes by themselves or sometimes working together with other genes and perhaps even with environmental triggers to bring about disease. And those are called complex diseases or uh, sometimes referred to as common diseases because they do tend to be a little bit more common in the population. So we end up looking at the entire range of human clinical presentation, whereby we think that um, genetic changes may be influencing somebody's susceptibility to develop a So, okay, uh, we're getting close to the end, but what, what projects are you working on right now? Are there any particular ones or it's whatever is, uh, you know, are there certain diseases you're looking at or what's your yeah, focus? So, so we have, um, we have a number of, of projects ongoing at the moment. I work on a particular project looking at, um, well, initially it was it was restricted to children, but we've opened it out to adults as well who have been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. So that's an, an autoimmune disease of the gastrointestinal tract, tract, and it's um it's it's quite it's it's a nasty disease, especially in children, because it means um, if your gastrointestinal tract is not working when you're young and trying to grow, it means that children may be very unwell and not able to take in their nutrition and grow as they should and be able to get to school so it can be a really nasty so we've um we've been looking at that we've recruited lots of children from around our region and we've also because it's a genetic study we recruit their mums and dads and then we've also started recruiting adults um from our regional hospital as well and we're sequencing lots of those individuals to try and understand on a case-by-case basis what might be the molecular basis of disease in each of those children. Um, because even though they might all present with very similar symptoms, it can be quite a different molecular cause. So it can be very two very different genes causing the disease in, in individuals who present with almost identical clin- clinical symptoms. And we think it could be really important if we're able to work that out uh, to be able to tell the clinician, okay, that um, it's actually gene X or a combination of gene X and gene Y in your first patient, but in your second patient, actually, it's a totally different gene altogether. 
and a different drug might be useful there. So we're trying to understand that better. And of course, it's an autoimmune disease. So some of what we find out there will be relevant, not just for inflammatory bowel disease, but for a number of the other autoimmune diseases. Um, we're, also working, we're also working on a number of cancer projects, specifically some cancers that are not, a, not commonly looked at in Genomics England or some of the bigger projects. Um, um, so we're looking at uh, some peritoneal cancers in the gut, and um, we're looking at some different rare lymphoma cancers. And then in rare disease, um, I have some really strong collab- collaborations with um, some pediatric nephrologists and ophthalmologists at the University of Southampton and at the University Hospital in Southampton. And so we tend to look at patients um, presenting with, uh, with clinical symptoms in those clinical diseases as well. What do you think is going to be possible from your work and from our understanding of, uh, you know, of DNA and of genes over the next few years? And then what do you think is way out in the future still? Well, I think over the next few years and what's really coming in now is, is the ability to um, actually get a diagnosis from, for everybody and not just a diagnosis as in a, a category that sort of labels a patient's presentation, but actually a molecular diagnosis that pinpoints the specific DNA changes that have meant that have meant that an individual has presented or developed a disease and that makes it might might sound like a subtle difference but for some people not understanding what the disease is or why it's there can be very difficult and of course understanding the molecular basis of all diseases whether they're common or rare is very is a critical first step in order to be able to prescribe the correct drugs that will actually have some effect in those individuals. So I think genetics and genetic diagnosis is going to be playing an increasing role in all our healthcare over the coming years. And I think it should help us diagnose things earlier and identify the best medicines and personalize the medicine, uh, the, the medicines that are made available to individuals once you know what their molecular disease is. Um, and I think that's increasingly uh, become part of the norm in both in the hospital setting and the tertiary care setting, and then gradually perhaps even shift into primary care setting. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more and get in contact and see the work that you're doing? Well, uh, uh, we have a website at Southampton. And, uh, I'm at the Faculty of Medicine in Southampton, and we have a website there that details our ongoing research. And of course, Anytime we get some new and interesting information, we always try and publish it in scientific journals and make that available. So anybody who has any specific interest in any any areas that I talked about can have a look at those papers um, or find me online. Well, very good, Sarah. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. That's no problem. Thanks very much, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.